Welcome to the Canadian Literature Centre's Brown Bag Lunch Reading and Conversation Podcast Series. I'm Sarah Krotz, the Director of the Canadian Literature Centre, which is based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. Known to many as Amiskwachi Weskaigan, Edmonton is located on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. Wherever you may be, we hope you enjoy this chance to connect with authors from across the country. Today's podcast reading and conversation brings together two captivating and innovative authors, Taya Matonji and J.L. Richardson. Born in Congo, Kinshasa, Taya Matonji is a poet and fiction writer. Her debut short story collection, Shut Up Your Pretty, is the first title from Vivek Shreya's imprint, VS Books. Praised for the nuance and candor with which it captures the deviant curiosity of adolescence and the irreverence of teenage years, Matonji's debut collection was shortlisted for the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize and won the Edmund White Debut Fiction Award and the Trillium Book Award. Matonji is also the recipient of the Jill Davis Fellowship at NYU. J.L. Richardson is the author of The Stone Thrower, A Daughter's Lesson, A Father's Life, a memoir based on her relationship with her father, CFL quarterback Chuck Ely. The Stone Thrower was adapted into a children's book and shortlisted for a Canadian Picture Book Award. Richardson is also a book columnist and guest host on CBC's Q. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Guelph and lives in Brampton, Ontario, where she founded and serves as the executive director for the Festival of Literary Diversity. Her debut novel, Gutter Child, published in January 2021 by HarperCollins, is a dystopian story of courage and resilience, while Gishi Grice calls it a fierce and astounding debut novel that draws from the brutal realities of colonial history and the sinister injustices of the present. Gutter Child, he writes, is a coming-of-age story like no other. We hope you enjoy this riveting conversation between two extraordinary writers. Hello, everyone. My name is JL, author of Gutter Child, executive director of the Festival of Literary Diversity. Hi, everyone. My name is Taya. I'm the author of Shut Up, Here Pretty, and I'm currently just living life. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. Uh, we are doing the podcast for CLC and our reading and conversation. We're going to be chatting about both of our books. And um, to start us off, I'm going to read a little bit from my book, Shut Up, Here Pretty. This is probably my favorite story to read. It was also my favorite story to write. It's called Tits for Sigs. I probably only love it because of that moment and just that word or that phrase. Okay, Tits for Sigs. Jolie was my first friend. Her name was actually Julieta. I shortened it to Jolie upon meeting her. I felt it captured her spirit more, her essence. The name came from a song Mother used to sing when we lived in Congo, where it was hot and mosquitoes didn't sting because we coexist with them. Bebe de mama, jolie, 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 the song went. Mother stopped singing once we immigrated. She stopped doing many things. But I liked that she had given me this, this song, so that I can now give it to somebody else. And Jolie was in fact Jolie. Long blonde hair, defined nose, blue in each eyes, rose in each cheeks. Thank you. Mm. I love that. I love hearing your voice as you read it. It's always lovely when you've read a book and then you hear the author like saying lines from it. It's like just brings it to life in a whole new way. Um, so I'm going to read a really, really short section from Gutter Child. Um, it's a dystopia. I'm reading from chapter two just because there's a really like concise section that I think gives a little bit of an idea of the world. Um, and so just so you know, uh, Alamina is one of the main characters. She's arrived at an academy where she doesn't know much about uh, what this place is like. And uh, her friend Josephine or her soon to be friend Josephine, I guess they're not quite friends yet, uh, is showing her around. Why is everyone staring, I say, after we pass them? People always stare at new kids, Josephine says. 
I can't imagine everybody, anybody's ever met a project kid before. Someone who's lived out there with mainlanders like a mainlander. Word travels fast around here. Josephine stops in front of a large statue of a man hunched over a cane, his glasses angled down on the tip of his nose. A plaque under his feet reads, Mr. Henry Livingstone, founder of Livingstone Academy, a man dedicated to the growth and development of gutter children pursuing greatness. Have you ever seen such an ugly mug? Josephine says. And for the first time, we both smile at the same time. The only statues in Cape Down were of General Colin Covey, the founder and father of the mainland, whose name appeared all over town. There was Covey Court and Covey Lane and the C1 Covey Overpass, which connected Cape Down to towns all along the Sunset Coast and throughout the mainland. Unlike Henry Livingstone, General Covey was incredibly handsome, as though his sharp jaw, broad shoulders, and black wavy hair destined him to be powerful, as though he was meant to be carved in stone. Inside schools and hospitals and every mainland government building, there were paintings and statues of Covey featuring his most famous words, for the greatness of the country. Whenever Mother and I went on walks, mainlanders would say these words with tense expressions, their eyes fixed on me, for the greatness of the country, they would say to Mother in a way that sounded more like a warning. For the greatness of the country, she'd mutter under her breath, the last line from that long quotation in my history book. Every gutter man, woman, and child will toil and struggle, and when they succeed, when they rise above their circumstances and redeem their place on this land, we will celebrate their toil and their labor. For the greatness of the country, we will shout. Am I from the gutter? I remember asking Mother. You were born in the gutter, but you live here, Elamina. You are as much a mainlander as I am. Then why do I have this scar? Because you are my special gift, because you are a gift to all of us then why does everyone hate me, I would say. And she would shrug her shoulders and hold her palms up like this was a mystery that we might never solve. Love that. <laughs> so, so just a teaser of the books, um, Taya, I, I feel like first we should start by talking about where we are. I mean, yeah. I'm in Brampton where I always am. It is where you find me, where I do fold, where I do everything. But you are not in this country right now, are you? No, I've run away. <laughs> I'm in New York, in Manhattan. And it's it's weird. It's, it's strange being here. Good strange, good weird. Uh, I'm currently doing an MFA at NYU. So I've packed my bags, I've moved my desk situation, and I'm writing away in the city where people write. <laughs> well, and I think because, you know, we just read from our work, and I'm, I guess one of my questions would be like, what, uh, some people go to writing school mm -hmm. to learn to write a book, to get mm -hmm. published, whatever. That's kind of how the route I took. Uh, but you've done it the other way. You published a book. Now you're in your, your MFA. Yeah. Why? What, what made you want to go? Uh, you know what? When I applied, I was like, I don't know how to write. I don't know what I'm mm -hmm. doing. I don't know how to write a novel. What is a novel? So I just sat and I wrote my application and I submitted and I got in. Um, so at the time, this was like, what, maybe six months ago, a little bit more than that now. Um, yeah, I was trying to write my novel and I was failing. So I wrote a memoir that I decided not to pursue. And it just seemed at the time like the right thing to do. It wasn't really like I, I didn't... I actually didn't know how to write. It was more so that my introduction to writing was so quick and fast um, that I guess I wanted something slow, right? Just, yeah. I published um, Shop Your Pretty, everything about this book. I was still an undergrad and I was teaching high school and I was bartending. <laughs> um, mm. That's the circumstances that went into publishing my first book. And I think I was also attracted to the idea of having two years to sort of like do nothing but focus on whatever it is that I'm going to be doing next. Also, it's New York. Who doesn't want to live in New York? So those are all <laughs> the reasons. Now that I'm here... Um, I feel immediately strong. Like I, I'm, well, I'm not like in the, since applying, I have finished the first draft of my novel that I was unable to write and I've just began the second draft. Um, and so I'm here now and, and I'm, I feel confident and I feel, I feel good and my novel is done. Mm. So I don't know. I'm chaotic by nature. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
told you, like, I'm just, I'm just chaotic. If it sounds chaotic, it's because I am. And that's just, it's funny because I think maybe I'm kind of the opposite. Like I, I feel my obsession with writing is about becoming as efficient with it as possible. Like I have a real, it took me eight years to write gutter child. And that felt like eternity like like eternal it felt too long it felt in the end it feels like just right but at the same time um the next one I'm just like okay how do I get more efficient with it how do I do better uh higher quality shorter time that's the goal and I have this very like uh capitalist approach to it right like time is money money is time let's go let's go um and so everything I'm doing with my writing I think has been about trying to just get more efficient with Mm -hmm. how I produce work um because chaos stresses me out (laughs) you know what it's 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 bizarre because my my life up until this point has always been extremely chaotic Mm -hmm. and since shut up you're pretty and that being on tour and all that, it's just gone so much quieter. And I'm, I'm like in New York, this big, big fancy city, but I'm very chill. I'm very much like writing, like it feels like I'm writing slowly. I'm editing my book slowly. The, the book is also boring, like, and I wanted it to be. So like the first few, the first. We're going to have to come back to that because I don't understand. <laughs> I wanted to write a very slow, like, like not romantic, but like, you know, Shop Your Pretty is very hard and uh, quick and intense. And I wanted to see if I could do the complete opposite. Um, of course, there's still my natural stream of consciousness that comes up in the second half of the book. But the first half is very, very slow, very just taking my time building these characters, which is something that you do very well. Like we, with, with mm-hmm. Gunner Child, this is like a book where you're creating a whole world and you're giving mm-hmm. us so much time to get used to it and to get into it. Mm-hmm. I'm doing that, I think, now with my new book with my mm-hmm. characters, but let's not talk too much about that because it might never get published. We, we don't know. <laughs> we, I don't, I'm very, I'm just interested <laughs> in the idea that like, I guess like I know there are books that move slowly, right? I know there are books that just happen. I, I think they must just happen. I think it's strange to hear someone say like, I'm intentionally moving slowly. Cause I'm always like, Oh, I've been bored for 30 pages of my own book. Something, yeah. something's got to happen. I got to put something in it. So I feel it's strange to be like, yeah, I'm just, just going to stretch it out, take its time. But okay, so okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to Garchal because of this reason. Something mm-hmm. slow doesn't have to be bad or it yeah. doesn't have to be boring. So when mm-hmm. I refer to Garchal as slow, I mean, I'm spending time like learning about these people with intention. Whereas yeah. like in Shop You're Pretty, you're going to learn about no one. Or if you're going to learn about them, you're going to learn everything in one line. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoon feed you so fast and so quickly um mm. so it's like what wh- what you've done with gutter childs where it's like i feel like i'm i'm getting a full tour mm. of this place these people that's what i consider slow that's like taking your time but i think that some people might say slow more like not not a hey because i i really like uh sally rooney's books but like mm. a sally rooney book like the conversation with friends is very slow and so is um her second one, which I believe is called, I forget the name. Oh, damn. Anyway, but um, both those books are very, very slow and it takes so long to sort of arrive somewhere. So I think people yeah. think that as slow. I think I use slow different, a little bit differently. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think if, if chaos is like your norm, then it makes sense that slow is not like the ordinary slow. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like my chaotic it's slower. <laughs> it's slower, you know? It's just slower. Um, and I think it's interesting that you talk about, uh, you know, gutter child and, and the way it moves slow. Cause I felt for me, again, I'm obsessed with efficiency, not just in how I do the work, but in how I sort of edit it down. The writers I admire the most do the most with the fewest amount of lines. Like they really, they really massage their writing and their editing. I remember reading brother and being like, I don't think there is an extra word in this book that can't be taken out. Yeah. And he said, uh, yeah. David Cherry, said, yeah, like it, 
it took him a long time to write it. And his editor just kept saying, I think you need to stop. Like, I think you're taking too many words out, but that's the kind of thing I love. And I think, you know, the first hundred pages of Gutter Child were really, there was a lot that needed to be unfolded. And it's one of the challenges of writing a dystopia. You can't just say, you know, they arrived in Toronto and have everybody sort of understand what that means on some level or be able to Google what that means. When you create a space called the mainland or a space called the gutter, you've got to like lay out what that means and what that looks like because nobody can get comfortable until they're like, oh, okay, there's an academy and it's on some grass and there's a lot of, la- okay, okay, you know? And, and so I felt really that those first hundred pages were the biggest struggle because I had to do so much world building. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to do was have the characters like talk to each other. That's, I'm obsessed with dialogue. I just want to oh, throw so people good. together and have them talk to each other. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, wait, I got to describe where they are because nobody knows what's in my head. That's yeah. annoying, but okay. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's great. Though. I love it. It's like a walk in the park or I guess a walk in a new city, a new place. I mean, it's funny with like, I'm someone who, I talk a lot. I'm very out there and very expressive um but then in show up you're pretty I, it's so interesting to me because i'm the character is so short and quick and all that and when i was writing this book i i honestly wasn't really thinking of like what pace I wanted to go to. I was just thinking of pretending that I personally was his character. Like I'm very much attracted to the idea of method writing. Um, And so I knew that I wanted her life to be very detached and cold. So a lot of the beginning for me was that like, let me just be very kind of like a camera looking at this place, looking at this character. Um, Let's not romance it too much. So I love the idea of just like, I'm going to say something and then I'm going to leave it. I'm going to give you a chapter. I'm going to give you a scene that I'm going to move on for it. Um, so some people call it a novel, which I actually really appreciate. I think that's really nice because um, it's a it's a nice way to kind of remember that these stories are meant to be together. But the reason why I chose a short story format was so that I could not spend time in certain places where I didn't want to spend time um, at the park where they frequent a lot. I didn't want to spend time in her horrible high school purposely. I wanted to sort of like always move forward from these moments and these scenes. And it feels so quick. Um, The French version just got translated and I've been reading it and it's in French because it takes a lot longer to say certain things in French. Um, It's so tender and intense in a way that it isn't in English. In English, it's dry, but in French, I'm like, what was I doing? (laughs) (laughs) What was I thinking? (laughs) Well, and a lot of people don't realize and very few, well, I don't say very few, I don't imagine many people can actually read their translations, right? So it's like a really unique opportunity to read your book in a different way. I think it's probably a little bit similar to like when I wrote Stone Thrower and it was turned into a children's book and he illustrated it. It was like seeing the story in a whole new way, right? You had it pictured, you're telling a story, but another artist is going to put their hand on it and tell it in a different way. It's really exciting to be able to collaborate like that. So good. I loved it. Um, mm. I really want to talk about friendship because I know that's like a big theme that both of yes. books do. Community, actually, even. You know, some yeah. of my favorite scenes of Gutter Child really are, I call, I referred to it earlier as um, the pregnancy house, the teen girl house. Mm. Um, and, but I loved it. It's my favorite section. And just like these young people sort of getting into each other's lives. I just loved it. Done so well. Um, it's definitely like the most important part that I was focusing on with my book, with Jolie and Loli and Olivia and all these characters. Yeah. And I think the richness of the characters for you was something that really, um, is something that really stood out. I mean, it stands out from the very beginning. I feel like from the very beginning, you're like, oh, this, this is like a, a, a friendship. These are relationships. I know I've seen, I've witnessed, um, but also told in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me with the the friendships in Gutter Child, what I was interested in exploring is, you know, Gutter Child explores the question, or for me, it started with the question, what happens when you grow up in a world that's designed for your failure? Mm 
And for Elamina, she's grown up apart from her community. She's born in the gutter. She's raised on the mainland by a mainland woman. And when her mainland mother passes away, the story begins. She's arriving at this academy. And for her, I think the interesting thing about friendship is she doesn't know who to trust right from the beginning because she doesn't know anyone. She doesn't see herself as a gutter child and everybody else knows more about what it means and who she is, like where she's come from. They know more than she does. And so friendship becomes a really interesting place where she gets to figure out what community looks like, right? Like on a bigger scale, more than just like we hang out together, um, she's figuring out what uh, what relationships can look like, what it means to be around people who look like you and understand things about you that you might not understand yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes, and it, I think it's really the driving force all the way through the novel is mm-hmm. uh, friendship and community, like who you trust, who, who, who cares for you, who protects you, who puts you at risk. Yeah. Um, these kinds of things become important. Yeah, it's really about you. What what was it about relationships? I guess friendships for you that that you wanted to explore. Did you learn something different as you were writing these stories? Yeah, uh, at originally the very 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 first draft when I started, it was the whole book was Jolie and Lily through and through for the entire time. Um, and I realized first of all that I was sort of like maybe trying to look at how friendship can sometimes be unhealthy. I started to look at that, but I realized I didn't want to do that specifically. So I had to sort of like end Jolie's storyline because the way I set them up, I couldn't imagine a different path for these characters. Like these characters are going to destroy each other. That's just factual. Um, That's how I set them up. And I didn't want that. So I I cut her out. I literally just made her disappear. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, we got to go. But then immediately I also loved Loli's attraction to, uh, Jolie, not just because of her sexual orientation, but also because of the fact that she learned so much about who she is or who she can be um, and to see herself a little bit differently. So exactly like Alamina through this person that enters her life who lives a little bit differently than her. And so I knew that the next the next friend she made, I wanted to play with the idea that the next friend would teach her something too, something new, would have some sort of effect. And then it became, okay, I'm going to make sure that all of the women in this book who come into her life are going to leave an impact. And I'm going to make that the central theme of my book. So every new story, you meet someone new and they have their own lives and they're experiencing a moment in a, in a new way. Um, and Loli sort of observes and then she moves on. And sometimes she, especially in the last leg of the book, she starts to sort of like decide what that means for her and who she wants to be as a person. But in terms of my thesis or the message that I enter this book with, with the idea of pretty or of how we look or how we're perceived, that was a guiding force. So I had written a poem in my undergrad that was called um, Pretty Woman. Yes, I'm obsessed with Julia Roberts. Yes, I'm inspired by that movie. Correct. Um, and this poem was about a young girl who experiences an assault and is told by the mother figure of this poem um, that it's just going to happen because she looks a certain way. So I entered this book wanting to write what would it look like to grow up as this girl? Like, what, what will be the natural way this girl will live her life? with this in mind. And since the mother in the poem was sort of like the, the person who had given her this philosophy of certain things are going to happen because you look a certain way, um, it just made sense that Jolie would say something that would inspire her. And so would Olivia. And so would Patty and all these characters that come in and out of her life until, you know, the end where it's, it's, she starts to sort of make a decision for herself. So, um, yeah, friendship was just the whole point for me. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I think too, um, for me, some of the male characters too, it was interesting to write them, but it was also more to, it was almost like I needed to write them to even compare, to, to even elevate the, the women's story, you know, not to say that I use them as props, but maybe I did. Um, <laughs> but it was also, I, I think it was because I was most interested in how, um, 
a dystopia, a world that's designed for your failure, particularly impacts women in a way that's far different from men. And the way that capitalism, colonialism, those systems have a different effect on the women than they do on the men. And I I was interested in exploring that. And I think as a result, I have these two male characters in particular. There's, I mean, there's Lewis too, but nobody likes him. So we don't have to talk about that. Uh, but it was, I had David and Rowan in there because I think it was really important to see how their journey in this system is quite different from the journey, the options and the opportunities of the women. And, and so I love what you say about these women who come into um, Loli's life and just sort of the journey that that takes her on, because I think it's critical. Yeah. I actually, I forgot about men completely. Um, I forgot that she had a father, right? Cause I, I, I start the book with introducing the father, right? So I think Shara Rose pointed this out to me, sort of like, Oh, like the, the, the father and the brother character sort of disappeared. And I was like, Oh damn. So I purposely wrote a story to kill off the, sorry for the spoiler, but to sort of get rid of the father figure. Um, <laughs> Cause I forgot. And then I had like a few more stories with, with guys in there. Sure. But it really was a second and afterthought. I really was interested in um, the world that women live in. If anything, I, you know, um, that's sort of my, my thing. I think I mean, my future works as well. It's just, I'm really interested in that, you know, the being a woman. Do you just anticipate that when there are men in your stories, they will die or somehow? And like, I really do really hope that one day I write a very nice guy character. Mm -hmm. I really, I think I, I think I can do it. I believe in myself. (laughs) I think what it takes to, because I, I think for me, I, a lot of people come back to me and say, oh, like David, he's problematic or whatever. And I'm like, I, I love David. I mean, David is based very closely on my father and he's based on the, and it's really a very interesting premise, especially in the black community. And I think I heard a, a, a gentleman talk about this before is oftentimes in order to succeed in a system that's designed for your failure, you have to make decisions that nobody else is making decisions mm-hmm. that that just intentionally separate you from people who you may love, who may care about you, but who are, you know, by their very nature, making choices you don't want to make. And so David in the story for me is like a really important character because what you probably don't like about him is that he's doing exactly what's necessary in order to change circumstances. And if you don't like him, that's like, you need to, you need to, ponder what what you expect from people who live in systems that's designed for their failure or what um you know where that's rooted because I think it's really um it's interesting but but I you know you were talking about writing like nice male characters that for me I think he's a nice male character and should I write another book that follows this one theoretically of course um I think there's some room to 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 play around with his character in particular I think that's awesome. I actually, you know what? I don't want to spoil your book for anyone who's interested who hasn't read it yet. But (laughs) But you're about to spoil it, aren't you? (laughs) I'm not going to spoil spoil, but I really, I really believed in Rowan through and through. Mm -hmm. And I I couldn't stop being heartbroken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was hard for me because I, you know, it's so interesting because I think part of the reason why it's hard is because you attach characters with people you know sometimes yeah and I felt like I just knew this per- I knew this boy I, I I knew the circumstances that that led this boy into this life and uh, yeah so well it I mean Rowan also is based on a very real pattern especially in professional sports with black men in the 60s in particular where they were <laughs> celebrated they were amazing and then um just like and this is what I say, the system's designed for, for their failure, right? It's not really, uh, for, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. When you look at men who go into professional sports, they get a ton of money. Generally speaking, they make a lot of money. And my dad played professional football in the Canadian football league. I mean, he didn't make a ton of money at the time he was playing and it was the Canadian football league, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and so when they get, they make a ton of money. They have agents who are willing to take, who are taking their cut at every corner. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, there's nobody to help them transition into life after professional sports, which we know they're going to have to face. So they're living this very glamorous life. They're getting a ton of money. Some of them, not all of them have come from difficult circumstances in which this money is like 
wildly different from what they've known growing up. And then um, they're put in professional sports and then that's it. Like nobody cares about them to the, after the point in which that's done. Mm -hmm. There, there are not a lot of systems put in place to help them transition into jobs that would keep them earning money or helping them invest in money that would create more. So if they keep living the lifestyle they're used to, and they don't make that kind of money, um, they, they can run into trouble if they get really into, behaviors that are unhealthy, they can find themselves in trouble. And nobody really cares about that so long as they're healthy on the court, on the field, doing the thing they're supposed to do. And some ways that's actually more entertaining or has some level of like uh, appeal, right? The bad boy professional athlete was like a thing people wanted to see. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a really toxic environment. And if you actually know the inner workings and the system that they're a part of, then you see their outcomes are as are, are as predictable as <laughs> as anything, right? You know what the possibilities for their future are going to be because they've been set up for failure in the process of sort of the success of mm -hmm. their lives and the, their professional sports. So for me, Rowan is a really um, important character because I think uh, we all root for him at the beginning. We're all excited. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm not going to spoil it, but like, you know, he makes some turns. He takes some yeah. turns, sideways moments. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's tough to take, but I also just find it's in my mind, I wrote it. So it's probably not very humble for me to say this, but I find it so realistic, his, mm -hmm. his life outcome. And I say this, I had a teacher who said, you know, I, is he a stereotype? Like, how am I supposed to respond to that? And I'm like, stereotypes are based on truths. First of all, they're always based on some measure of truth. And in a system, a stereotype can actually be the expected outcome of a system that nobody addresses. Yeah. So if you, for example, know that in a youth detention center, most of the young people there um, who are in that system don't have a father, and you know that that's a pattern and you do nothing to increase support for young men who don't have fathers or et cetera, et cetera, then the stereotype is the reality. It's the thing you've created by not fixing what you know is wrong or by not addressing the problem that you know is wrong. So I think that's, that's an important uh, thing to look at when you're, when you're reading some of these stories and saying like, why is every story about X community, there's an alcoholic or a drug? Well, <laughs> You put alcohol in a community where there's very little and no help. What are people going to do? They're going to yeah. drink the alcohol. It's not a stereotype. It's an outcome of a system that's failing. Yeah. I, it's funny because I, I actually attach Rowan and Loli sort of together. Mm -hmm. So it's everything you're saying is actually things I was thinking of when I was developing her character. I saw a Goodread, which I actually don't often read my Goodreads, but this was an early stage of the publishing world. I was 24. I didn't know better. So young. So <laughs> foolish. So I foolish. You look at your... Um, and someone was like, why would a, like, why would you put someone through so much? Like, why would you deliberately write a character that goes through? And I'm like, because that's the literal world that she was like put in. And I wanted to just like you, I wanted to be realistic about it. I wanted to tell this particular story. I didn't want to tell the story where like, oh, someone who grows up in poverty and who spends her life being bullied and is sort of going through bad circumstances just magically is healed. That is not realistic. It, it, they're, they're, it's not going to happen that way. So I was really looking at the stereotype, right? I wanted to look at, well, what is a realistic pattern that will, will would she fall through, especially knowing that she's a very like susceptive person, especially knowing that she's sort of like a follower already. We know that from the very first story, she's someone that's like kind of down for anything sometimes, actually always to her own fault, actually. Um, <laughs> I really do Bring like it on. Let's go. Oh, well, she's my girl. Well, and I think I think this sort of brings me to an interesting question that I always want to talk to you about. So yes. this is like out of my secret, like, Taya, if I ever get to talk to you one-on-one, -on -one, <laughs> this is what I want to talk about. But I think it's really interesting. We're talking about, you know, stereotypes. We're talking about these characters um, writing in the, from the, like the black community. And I'm, I'm curious because for me, I have a white agent and a white editor. And so when I'm grappling with these things, this I, I very much grapple with them alone. And I will say like, they're great in terms of like 
this is what I think, like they'll weigh in on their opinion, but it's very different. It comes from a very different place. It comes from a very, very different upbringing that ironically is actually probably more similar to the upbringing I had, which makes it almost worse. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up quite privileged. And so when they're weighing in, like they're probably actually seeing things far more similarly to me than I think, but for the worst reasons, (laughs) you know, like I, um, and so I'm curious what it was like for you writing this kind of story and playing with this kind, this notion of, you know, stereotypes and, making difficult things happen to to characters, um, what it was like working with Vivek and, and what it was like, um, because now I think that's kind of changed, right? Your next book, your, yeah. your work, uh, I don't think you're working with Vivek for the, for mm-hmm. your next stuff. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, you know what that I feel is the big difference as to this book could have been something completely entirely different if it wasn't for working with Vivek. One thing that I really loved is that I actually didn't have to explain anything when we first got the book together. Um, especially at the, in the earlier versions, I had a lot more cultural specific things about Congo and about, um, being an immigrant and about uh, like just coming from Africa, the diaspora, all that good stuff. Um, and I, I've shared some of those parts in the cl- in my class where I had to sort of like explain this section, explain that section, be like, oh, this is a cultural thing. And it was interesting. The second I got to working with Vivek, this never happened. We were just, we just understood each other. I remember when we met, she said to me that part of the reason she loved my book is because she could see herself in there. She could like, she understood like the childhood that this character is experiencing. And that was really important. Um, a lot of her edits were us talking about the story and not even like we were talking about them. Like they were real people. We were talking about Loli, like she's someone that we were both very familiar with. And that was our editing process. He was just talking about her life more than even doing a lot of the heavy craft stuff. The craft was sort of like, what do you like? Where do you, what are you actually trying to say in this section? Like that was sort of the observation. Um, so when I stopped working with Vivek, she got a copy of the work I had done outside of her. And she emailed me immediately <laughs> sort of being like, what happened? Because I, I just started explaining everything and, and it's not the fault of my editor. My editor was just really asking as editor does just for curiosity reasons. And also, so she can better like assist me in this trajectory. But at the time I'm so young and naive. And when I'm being asked to explain certain parts, I actually think I've done it wrong. So I would change it as opposed to just like writing back to my editor and being like, this is what I mean, right? Like, I didn't think that. I didn't think to just, so I would change the nature of this section. And then it was like, well, why would you do that? Like, no, 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 she's asking a question <laughs> just to ask a question. She's not telling you to change it. So that was like definitely not a fault of my editor, but just having gone from Vivek who didn't need explanation, who didn't need, who didn't ask certain questions to someone who kind of did, um, it freaked me out, but it's not a fault to anyone. So I'm not saying this as a shit talk. Um, I really appreciated working with um, everyone at Arsenal. It was just really interesting that that's the difference when you are reading something from a BIPOC person and you uh, have similar backgrounds or upbringing, you understand certain things that an editor, you know, like, who doesn't come from that background will not. And having been that young and not knowing what an editing process looks like and not understanding the industry, I definitely like was shocked by this, right? Like I was like freaked out that I was doing something wrong. Um, and yeah, and then I, I reverted back to some of the original passages and everybody was just happy and excited to be part of like involved. So it's interesting. Um, I think that the fear that I have when it comes to working with different editors is to lose the truth that I'm trying to get at. It's to lose things that are important to me that I don't want to take out. That's always going to be the fear. And I, I believe that might be the truth for everybody. Yeah. It's it's really hard to know where your gaze, like where who you're writing to and and what to leave in and what to leave out. Uh, for me, working with, with a white editor, because I think there are moments in which... <laughs> and this is like, again, like you... <laughs> I think it's hard for people to have these conversations and recognize that we're all talking about good people, right? Like, yeah. and I feel it's annoying to say this because I think everybody knows, like my editor, Jen Lambert, she's a great person, just like a nice human. Yeah. But there's also just like, for people who aren't BIPOC, maybe it's important for them to understand that being two good people doesn't mean that you are helping each other out in the ways that you need to be helped. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is really the most difficult part of, of gutter child. And the, the moment where I realized like what race, 
how race is going to separate um, me from from my my editor in ways is you know I was working on um, the 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 book uh, in 2020 um, and was wrapping the book up in the summer of 2020 and just as like a placeholder for life, you know, in 2020, February, 2020, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, was shot by white men chasing him on a run. Breonna Taylor was shot in her home. Um, and then of course, George Floyd. And in the midst of that, there were a number of Canadian cases as well. And so I'm writing this story with these things happening in the world. And I'm writing a story that's kind of talking about some of these things. So it's not like I, I cannot react to them or I cannot think about them in relation to my book. They're happening. The story is crossing over with some of these themes. Um, and as a black woman, I was just feeling a lot of things. I was feeling a lot of things. And I knew um, my editors were feeling a lot of things in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And so I'm feeling these things and I'm, I can't talk to her about them on the same length. I can't just be like, it's tough and have her say, I know, like, I know I'm struggling and she's struggling on a whole different level from a whole different realm. And so picking like the way the book wraps up, picking like the message, the theme, what, what I'm giving people, there's a note at the front of the book that sort of says like, take care as you're reading it. Like these are, these are tough times. Those were all things I had to work on and figure through and write and evaluate myself without even really knowing how the black community, which is very important to me, would respond. Mm -hmm. um, I had no, uh, at that, like at those very last hours, I got my sister-in-law to read it and I got another friend to read it. And that their feedback was so helpful to me um, because it meant like, I had hit the right points in certain places and it also helped me understand what I needed to look at and explore differently with the ending. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, that's something that a lot of BIPOC authors, we have to find our own communities to kind of build around our books um, outside of like our editorial process, which is like dividing the book in two, even though those things are inherently linked. Mm -hmm. How you tell a story and what is in the story are both influenced by who you are and what you've read beforehand. And so, mm -hmm. Um, if your editor and you are coming from these very different perspectives, it can, it can make it difficult because yeah. for, and I'll give you an example because people are always like, I don't want to get it. I don't get it. Right. A very colonizing way to write literature is to, you know, complete everything, dot every I, cross every T, wrap it up, give everybody sort of peace of mind about what they're supposed to take away or learn. That can be a very, uh, typical approach. And when you're going to do that differently, when that's shaped by how you tell stories, but your editor has read different stories, has um, approached storytelling differently, whether or not that's a good idea is hard to evaluate because you're looking at it from two different reasons and perspectives. And ultimately your editor is going to be like, go with what you want, go with what you trust. But I mean, that's assuming that what you trust is the right thing. That's assuming that what you've trust have been well thought through. And, and that can be sort of nerve wracking to take complete responsibility for a wild and wacky ending. Yeah, for absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like well, edit, editing with Vivek was also mentorship, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually always say that I'm like, oh, man, I had such a good run. <laughs> it's like oh so not every editing editing relationship i'll have won't be like this they won't be like let's just talk for an hour about like my character's like frame of mind um it won't always be that way um and that's that's okay you know but at the same time i feel like I'm at a point in my writing and in my life where that's probably something that I'm going to need, I guess. Like, I think choosing my next editor is going to probably be based on the story that I'm telling, um, especially, you know, I'm currently trying to avoid writing something that's super race heavy only mm. because I realize that I, I'm unable to carry that even with Sharp mm. You're Pretty. It's, it's interesting when people talk about it a lot in relationship to race, because I actually uh, don't see it as a, a permanent theme. It's just more like this is a black woman or a black girl. Mm. That's basically it. But I don't actually intentionally talk about blackness in a way that's sort of like, uh, frontal. So mm. I find it very interesting that everybody else does. Cause it's just like, but where? Like, where? <laughs> yeah, 
where are you seeing it? Like where exactly, you know? So that's interesting to me. Um, And knowing that it's just anything I write will always have to talk about blackness or will always, that's going to always be attached to it because I am myself black. Um, So that's so interesting to me. And I had a friend who read one of the early versions who said to me, are you afraid of using the word black in your book? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Because it's something that I don't, I don't actually think about being black 24 seven, unless mm-hmm. you're making me, I'm, I'm not going to think about this really. Um, it, you know, do you I'm, think that has to do with like where you grew up and like where you've lived? Like, do you think that that's shaped you? Because I find I'm obsessed with it. Like in a way, I just got to be honest with people. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Yeah. And it's because, you know, in America, it is an obsession. It is mm-hmm. like built into everything. Yeah. And, and I think it influences Canada. And I, I say that because I find it really fascinating that, that you, you're intentionally trying to like creep it out because it's inherently in there. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm like, oh, I'm trying to creep it out so people don't know that my brain is obsessive. <laughs> I think it goes in phases. I I think that I, I think that I am still processing and I'm using this word very carefully because I did grow up in a predominantly white environment, which a lot of people read my book and they don't realize that. Yes. I was in Scarborough for like three years of my life as a child. I lived in Galloway, but then I moved to Oshawa. Um, and you know, in early two two thousands, this was 2007 when we moved, it was very, very white. And I went to a predominantly white, sorry, not predominantly, um, let's say more, exhaustingly white school in high school that was also Quebecois French. There's so many factors that made those four years of my life just like, I don't even have the words for it. Like I graduated high school over 10 years ago and I still have no idea how to talk about it till Mm. this day. And I think because of that, I avoided in my writing as much as I can because I'm not sure I feel that I want to use my writing sort of like a vehicle for like therapy for me. Um, and that's part of the reason why I'm not at a place in my life where I want to tackle it right now. Um, and having grown up in a space where being black was so in every day for me, it's important for me to sort of get peace from that. Right. Like I can't live my life have like having to defend this or talk about this or uh, interact with this all the time like I did for like four years in this, the worst place in the entire world <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and to you know it's interesting because when I was writing this book the me too happened in the middle of me editing this book out of nowhere I woke up one day in, in 2018 in January or February it was and it was like and it, so you're in this moment where you're trying to mute the world because the world is happening in your book and it's stressful. And again, when I was writing um, my memoir, I actually deleted all social media for a couple of months and I said, I'm gonna just pow through this little book. Um, and then my friend messages me and said, hey, I know you're not on social media, but do you want to know before you go back? Cause it was like my Friday to go back online. I give her my password and she keeps it until it, I'm ready to go back. So she's like, I don't know if I should tell you or like, so then I find out that three people just died because I wasn't online. I was not talking to anyone. I was literally locking myself. Like, I'm not talking to anyone. I won't interact. And I experienced all these deaths at the same time while writing this, mm. the memoir that I literally was like, I can't do this. I, I can't live my life doing this. Right. So that's, that's where I come from. Um, but this is interesting because it, there's so many ways to to sort of be black, be an artist, be a writer, especially, and choose how you want to interact with that in your writing. Well, and that, I it's so fascinating because I think too it's important. Like I I I think I'm kind of kind of the opposite. Like mm-hmm. I think I do write as a form of like therapy. I think therapy is maybe the wrong word I would use, but I I sometimes can't figure out how I feel. Or I can't figure out how I feel or what to think about the world until like I put my characters in a situation that helps me learn something. You know, like I I didn't really realize, for example, um, it wasn't until I was working on Gutter Child and I was trying to figure out the backstory for um, how the gutter came to be kind of thing where I realized 
I didn't want to write a story where they had been slaves. And I was like, okay, so let's move slavery out of there. And then I was like, so what's the story? Like, I don't know a story other than that. I had been taught all my life Black history from the perspective of arriving in America and becoming slaves and getting emancipated. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's this beautiful story of Lincoln as the hero and all these sorts of things that happen. Um, but it's 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 a very small part of the Black story. And I did not um, realize, I was, I was talking to Francesca Equiasia actually at one point, and she was like, I only learned about like the kings and queens and like all the things she learned about her own community and her history was very different. And I'm like, that's, that's something that has, it, it, it continues to be a problem in history classes. When you look at Black History Month, we're looking at the civil rights movement, we're looking at emancipation, we're looking at slave enslaved people. Um, and uh, it's just a really troubling thing. So it wasn't until like, I had to write a backstory for the gutter um, that didn't include slavery, that I realized like this is the journey of so many African countries and so many countries that have been colonized and there was an original people there. It's why a lot of times when people read Gutter Child, they see similarities in indigenous communities and with um, residential schools. It's because that's the process of colonization. Colonization arrives, erases what's been there and tells a whole different story on top of it. And that's really what I needed to unpack and explore. And I needed to understand that that's a kind of like theft a kind of way of taking from communities and people um, that that's very difficult to fix. Uh, but for me, that's what I learned. That's that's why I write these stories is to try and figure out like what is wrong with the way I even see myself as a black person. What are things that I'm carrying with me because I was raised uh, in a very like like you mostly white people around me, other than my immediate family, mostly white family, white friends, white classmates um, for a very long time. And so it's like what what have I taken into my body as a result of that experience? And how do I need to kind of work against that by mm -hmm. reading more, talking to more black people and, and seeing like, you know, some black people want to talk about trauma and difficulties and the things we've been through. And some are like, nah, thanks. I'd rather imagine a great, a new future. And that's okay. Um, I think it's just being allowed to be honest with where we are and why that is, is really important. Yeah. And also just having space to sort of like have those two truth be like right at the same time, like being sort of like yeah. at the forefront. Um, yeah, I, I think to, to correct myself a little bit, it's just, I think it's actually just specifically when it comes to race that I struggle. So I just choose, I'm oh no, wait, not that I choose. I am choosing not to do that in my writing in a way that I will then sell to an industry that will challenge that for me because I'm just not at the place in my life to do that I'm open to in the future I'm only open to anything as my as lowly as <laughs> but I, I think too it's so important for us to write what's in us what what's in us and wants to come out like that's the primary place for writing so if for me like I used to feel really badly that like I'm obsessed with race in the way that like I think if you pick up any book that's about a bunch of white people, like a romance novel or whatever, and you put one black character in it, two, three, it changes the whole story. The whole way it unravels and unfolds will change mm -hmm. by the very nature of these things that have affected who we are, where we live, et cetera. And so I'm obsessed with that thinking and like playing that out in different scenarios, you know? And um, I think that's okay. I think there's people who, who um, focus on war or focus on, you know, immigration or they focus on there's these issues that are really, they're really front of mind and, and interesting to them. And I'm learning to just be okay with what interests me. Oh yeah. That's so important, right? Like we need you, right? Like we need you to write these books. Um, and I, I like to believe that maybe someone needs me too, right? I just think it's great. Like I love reading and I love seeing that in other people's works. Can, um, let's end on a high note. Oh. Okay, I was going to ask a question. You ask your question, oh, wait, and then no, I'll see. No, you first. No, well, my question, well, my question I would. <laughs> my question was about. I want to know what it's like for you coming off like your debut mm -hmm. has this wild success, long list awards, <laughs> stickers on the front of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, what is it like? 
<laughs> what is it like writing a book like that first and yeah. then going to write your next book? Like what kind of, are you, are you feeling pressured? Or are you feeling excited? Was it like, yes, I'm going to do it again. Like where, where are you at with that kind of high? Yeah. Um, I think it changed. It changes almost daily. When, when it first happened, I was like, oh, this is the worst thing in the entire world. I could never do this again. That fear, right? But at the end of the day, my relationship with writing is I love it. I wrote my entire life. I don't, I don't know what else to do. Like, I write when I'm bored. I write when I'm sad. I write when I'm happy. I write constantly. And um, so that makes everything okay for me, right? It just means that I stop thinking of the awards pretty, pretty soon when I get into a writing groove because I forget that they even exist. So that's one part of it. But when I'm walking down the street and I am thinking of the life I want to live, I freak out because I'm like, well, my next book actually will make or break my career. That's what it feels like. I know it's probably not true, but it feels this way, especially now that I'm in New York and I'm doing a program. I'm in like more of an American market now. That scares me. So when I'm away from my desk and from my story, I'm panicking. But when I'm mm. writing and I'm in there, I'm calm because, well, I'm not writing for you. I, I really just write because I want to. I just, mm. I'm a selfish writer in that way. Um, it's it's my kink, so it's always about me when I write it, <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. Um, I love that. Yeah, so it, it's really, but I will tell you, I actually, weirdly enough, I was so terrified at the Writers' Trust Award that a part of me didn't want to win. <laughs> I was terrified of like what that would mean for the rest of my career, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, it scared me so much. And then I was sad that I didn't win. I was like, Andre Alexis, I'm gonna have a word <laughs> with you. It's so, so funny because, <laughs> because I um Better Show was was short shortlisted? Yeah, short, shortlisted for the Amazon First Novel Award. And I honestly had no belief that I was going to win. Like I, and I, I have to be very honest. When I say that, it's not just like, oh, I don't think my book is good. Enough. I just had seen, you know, Francesca's book had done so well. Michelle's book had done, Michelle Good uh, has, had done so well. I was just really quite confident that one of them were ultimately going to like take, take it away. Mm -hmm. But there was a weird feeling when they started to describe Michelle's book because it actually sounds a lot like there were some similarities in theme that I was like, oh, maybe, maybe. And there was this moment where I like was like the hope came and then dropped. But what was so important to me in that moment was to realize like you cannot control hope. You cannot control the wish to want more for your book or more, want more visibility. Yeah. But what I what I can control is how I write and the process with which I approach the book. And I never, I never think about awards or want to think about awards while I'm writing. I don't even want to think about them when they come out, to be honest. It's such an unpredictable, unsatisfying process to hope for an award. Yeah. Um, that it's just more for me. I've started to get really excited. I think one of the ways I sort of channel my energy is I get really excited about the process. So like, like for the Gillers this year, I made like a bingo card and I like researched and like planned out, you know, what books that I thought might be on it. And I was like, oh, I got this many out of this many. And that was fun for me. It created a game out of it that, that alleviated what I know would have been some level of anxiety and stress and anticipation, even if on for very different reasons, I also did not expect to be on the long list for the Gillers. Um, it's but it, it was more about realizing like what is it about the award season that I can enjoy, and what is it about award season that's just like not worth carrying around with you for any amount of time. Yeah, honestly, I I loved the award season, not really because of the awards, but I really met the coolest people. I mean, come oh. on, I love dancing. I just love being with people and oh, it's just, I love it. And I cannot like, you know, we're in the pandemic. So it's sort of like, yeah, like exactly what you said. It's okay to hope. So I, I am, I'm hoping 
that one day we'll all be in a room together again, just celebrating the fact that we were writers. Writing is a tough thing. Getting a book published is a tough thing. And um, that to me just feels like an award on its own, really. I know that sounds so cheesy, but it really do feel that way, right? Like I just... I feel so good. And I also think like awards tend to be more about visibility, right? It's about, you know, if you win certain awards or have the sticker, there's sort of like a a better likelihood that someone's going to read it. So I always think about it that way. If it's about visibility, then like I can control on some level visibility in my own space um, where I can focus on visibility and, and making myself more visible and more present without having to lean into like the lottery pick of, right, of, right. of an award. Right. Um, and that's why I also tell writers, like, just if you're writing, if you're getting started, like, think about the ways in which you can be visible and you can be present, mm-hmm. um, whether that's, like, getting involved at festivals near you or getting involved at your alma mater, if that's a thing, or building communities of writers, you know, get into these spaces where <clears throat> people are going to want to support you uh, because mm-hmm. of who you are, as well as your writing. And that can can feel like, you know what, I may not have won the war, but I've, like, these people might my sister did a book club with my book. And like, there's these things that you can do that, that are really within your control, mm-hmm. um, that can, that can add to the writing journey. And for some people, they just write and they just put their books out on the shelf and like magic happens. But for me, I, I, I feel very much like it's important if I want this to be, you know, writing's a lonely thing. So you do it by yourself. I pull myself away from my husband and my son to write. And while that's good, I like doing that it also has consequences, you know, in terms of our relationship and the time I can spend with them. So when I'm talking about visibility, it's about, for me, also evaluating, like, the how to, how to make it have its maximum um, possibility, the maximum possibility for the book. That's, that's all kind of my, I, I like to think about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I definitely struggle with that because I, I actually, you're such a good thinker. Like, that's so, so funny. You're such a good businesswoman when it comes to this. And someone has said to me that being a writer is sort of owning your own business. Um, I'm definitely not that strong when it comes to sort of like marketing myself in that way or putting myself out there. I really need to get better at that. Um, but I, I think that you know, the thing about writing is financially is sort of like not the greatest thing. Yeah. Um, so of course, when it comes to awards, I'm like, I would, yes, I would yeah. love, I'd give me that money. I love that. It's a great idea. Just yeah. give it to me. If anyone wants to just give me money, just do it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but there is sort of like such an insane privilege to be able to write comfortably and yeah. to, to take that time and that space. So um, I, it's really hard for me to think of the word stuff when I'm writing because I'm busy thinking of like, well, how much hours of work am I also going to have to do to like afford rent this month and eat like these little things. So I try to leave the awards behind. I know. Uh, yeah. There's a real privilege to, to writing and there's a privilege uh, that can happen in writing that we don't often talk about either where, you know, if you have a spouse who perhaps generates a like consistent Mm -hmm. and higher income, then maybe that makes more time for you to write. And if you have a full-time job that's flexible and allows you to write in a way that other full-time jobs may not, there's all these sorts of things where awards can feel stressful on a privilege level because it can feel like if I just got the Geller, then I would be able to write for a year and get a book out faster. Like it feels like the process is faster. And I guess, you know, I would just advise people, uh, to build a lot. Like I never expect to make enough money off my books. (laughs) Yes. Lesson learned. (laughs) Not looking at any award to help you that way. It's just (laughs) that I, so like to build a life that's predictable and to allow the amount of time it takes to write your book to be Mm -hmm. the amount of time it takes to write your book. I, I, I really believe the thing that is most stressful for writers and especially when it comes to money and advances and, you know, all these sorts of things comes around the pressure to produce in a time frame that is not what's needed for that book. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it took me eight years to write Gutter Child because it required eight years to write Gutter Child. There were things I had to learn. There were things I had to do. Uh, there were things that had to happen in the world, honestly, for me to grow up and, and make some important choices. And so I just encourage people 
really build your life, your books at a pace that you can manage, try and only take contracts that give you that kind of flexibility and peace of mind. Because if you take it saying like this book has to come out in a year for your next advance and you're waiting for that in order to do like eat, like that can feel really stressful, obviously. Um, Yeah. So I guess that's like, in terms of wrapping up with advice, I always like to wrap up with advice. I would just say, you know, right. Because, because you love it corny, I know, but also just give yourself the time emotionally, financially, spiritually, et cetera, to write the book as you need to. Yeah. Time is great. Taking advantage of time is so important. Um, I feel like that's a great way to, to end. Um, I'm taking my time. What are you doing next? I am working on, uh, <laughs> I am working on a, a follow-up, uh, a sequel Ooh. to, to Got a Child. Um, and then I also know, I think kind of what the next book is. So I'm really excited. I'm now in a good place where I feel like I'm moving, uh, through, you know, we started by talking about my obsession with process. I've built this process where I like, I feel like I'm in a good place. Um, and I also feel like the thing that's coming after, like I've got the time and space to, to get there at, at a, in a way that is comfortable mm-hmm. and um, healthy. Yeah, that's awesome. You? Um, you know what? I'm just trying to be alive. <laughs> that was such a weird segue. <laughs> I, I, um, I'm just enjoying being here right now. I'm uh, Yes, I'm writing my book and yes, I'm in school. And in between that, I'm just trying to um, find joy in life and do mm-hmm. things that make me happy. That's sort of... Uh, publishing can wait for a second. It's sort of where I'm at right now. Well, if you see any famous people in New York while you're there, you know, just tell them I say, hey, and uh, give them a copy of Gutter Child and <laughs> Shut Up, You're Pretty, and we'll be good. We'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. I'll, I'll make sure I say bye, uh, hi to Matt if I see him from Bachelor. Um, yeah. Thank you for chatting with me. Every time I chat with you, I sort of get lost in this conversation. I want it to never end. <laughs> Well, thank you for, for joining me. Thank you, those of you who are listening, for joining us on the, the podcast. We, um, You can find me. I'll give you some of my handles and exciting information if you want to follow up with this. You can find me at J-A-E-L Richardson um, on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find my website at jlrichardson.com. If you're a teacher, there is an educator guide to go with Gutter Child. So if you're interested in looking at it, teaching it in the class, um, head to jlrichardson.com forward slash writing. And I am available on Twitter and Instagram at Taya Mutangi. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm available elsewhere. I have a TikTok, but Larry don't use it. So <laughs> feel free to follow at your own risk. <laughs> um, right. And if you speak French, my French version's currently out. So go out and buy it. It's at Indigo from what I know so far and small bookstores in Montreal. So have fun. Read it en français. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Congratulations. Bye. That was J.L. Richardson and Taya Matonji in conversation in the fall of 2021. This Brown Bag Lunch podcast was produced by the Canadian Literature Centre with funding from the Canada Council for the Arts. It was edited by Claire Peters. Music composed and performed by Bruce Ziff. The CLC's programming is also made possible by generous financial support from Dr. Eric Schloss and from the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta. Thank you for listening.